We're in our Acts series, we're in our Book of Acts series, and today brings us to chapter 9, which is really perhaps the most important chapter in the Book of Acts. At least for the history of the church, it's one of the most important happenings happens in the ninth chapter of Acts. And I'm just going to read the first 31 verses of Acts chapter 9, and then we're going to get into the Word. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you, uh, by the way, you can go to BibleGateway.com if you want to follow along on your phone. Uh, That's my favorite uh, Bible app and website. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembled. He, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, He was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you speak to us mightily by the power of your word and your spirit. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We are in the midst of our Book of Acts series, and now we come to one of the most dramatic turns of events that transpired in the entire Book of Acts, and that is the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarsus. And when we talk about conversion, we're talking about a radical transformation of heart, of mind, and of will. Oftentimes for us in contemporary Christianity in our world, when we talk about conversion, we're simply talking about saying a prayer and now calling yourself a Christian. Uh, there's not a huge change oftentimes when we come to Christ. There might be some small changes, but oftentimes there's not huge changes. I mean, you don't find people like Saul of Tarsus who yesterday were killing Christians and now today calls himself a Christian. You see, there was no way possible for Saul of Tarsus to become a Christian except by a direct visitation from the Lord himself. There was no way possible that anybody could have convinced him with apologetics to become a Christian. There's no way possible that anybody could have sat him down and rationally proved to him the veracity of the tenets of the Christian faith. There's no way possible that anyone could have shown him enough evidence that would have persuaded him that Jesus was real or that Jesus was Lord. There's no way he would have even believed any miracle testimonies or, or anything that anyone would have said. Nothing could have convinced him to turn to faith in Christ. Nothing but a direct visitation of Jesus Christ himself. You see, Paul, or Saul, by the way, he did not change his name from Saul to Paul, as is very commonly said uh, by Christians. Actually, his name, Saul, that was his Hebrew name. Paul, that was his Greek name. So even throughout the book of Acts, when he's in a Hebrew context, they continue to call him Brother Saul. And when he's in a Greek context, they call him Paul. Saul... Um, he was, he, he tells us about himself uh, in the book of Philippians, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
and according to law, he was a Pharisee. And then he uses this word zeal, according to zeal, persecuting the church. The thing we must understand about zeal is that when the word zeal appears in the Bible, it is not a psychological description. When we talk about zeal, when we say somebody was really zealous, it's about having passion in your heart. It's a psychological situation. But in Scripture, zeal is not a psychological situation. It is a theological situation. Zeal is the willingness to do whatever is necessary to remove from Israel that which defiles the people of God. And so people in the Old Testament who were said to move with zeal, like this guy Phineas, you heard of Phineas? You know who Phineas was? Phineas was the dude who saw an Israelite man going into his tent with a prostitute in the middle of a plague in which God was killing Israelites for going into their tents with prostitutes. Right in front of the presence of God, this man took a prostitute and went into his tent. And Phineas grabbed a spear and followed them into, his t- into their tent and pinned them to the earth. <laughs> right? And then the plague stopped. And God said, Phineas was as zealous for my name as I am. He moved with zeal and made atonement for Israel. So zeal was whatever is defiling. So there's this concept of defilement in the Old Testament. Whatever is defiling the people of God is bringing God's judgment upon the people. And so you got to put to death whatever is bringing defilement upon the people so that God doesn't have to judge us and kill us all, right? So this was Paul, or, or Saul of Tarsus, He said, according to zeal, persecuting the church, meaning that the reason why he was persecuting Christians, the reason why we saw a couple chapters earlier that he endorsed the assassination of Stephen, and the reason he's now going from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem where they can be killed is because he's zealous for the Lord. That is, he thinks he's serving God. He thinks he's obeying God. He thinks he's doing the will of God. Matter of fact, he thinks he knows God, but he doesn't. He thinks he's serving God, but he's not. He thinks he's obeying God, but he's not. He thinks he's doing God a service, but he isn't. Isn't it interesting that it's possible to think you know God when you don't know God? You see, you might not have ever killed any Christians, but maybe you think you know God, but you don't. Maybe you never drug anybody off to to, to prison, but it's possible to think you're serving God when you're not. It's possible to think you're obeying God when you're not. And this was Saul's situation, thinking that he was in the right when he was actually in the wrong thinking he was doing what God wanted him to do when in actually in actuality he was doing the opposite of what God wanted him to do he was in a situation in which there was no way he would have ever turned to Christ had he not had a visitation of Jesus Christ himself now can i say to you that that same truth applies to each and every one of us There's no way any of us could ever believe in Jesus Christ unless Jesus Christ has revealed himself to you personally. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's because you have had an encounter with Jesus Christ himself. And sometimes all that encounter is, is the presence of faith. 
Like sometimes the only way you know you've met Jesus is because suddenly you didn't believe in him yesterday, but you find yourself believing in him today. Or sometimes you don't even know when you started believing in him, but suddenly you wake up and realize three months ago I didn't believe in him, but now I believe in him. There's no way you could believe in Jesus Christ unless Jesus Christ himself has encountered you in the deepest place of your being. The greatest miracle is the miracle of salvation. The greatest miracle is the miracle of faith. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'll, I'll never forget sharing the gospel with um, a, a member of our church called me one, one, one week and said, my mother is in the hospital and she's dying. Now, this was an older Japanese woman. She was fine one day, and the next day she fell to the floor while she was playing with her grandson, and she was rushed to the hospital. She was in tremendous pain, and they found a grapefruit-sized tumor in her stomach, and she was in stage four, and she only had a couple weeks left to live. And her daughter called me on the phone and said, my mother does not know Jesus would you please go to the hospital and pray for my mother? I said, sure. I went to the hospital, and this was an older Japanese woman, and I, I, I stood by her bed, and I asked her, do you know anything about Christianity? She said, I do not. Do you know anything about Jesus? She said, I do not. Have you ever been to church before? She said, never. She had no grid, no framework for understanding who Jesus was or the gospel or any of that. She had none, no experience with it whatsoever. I said, would you mind if I shared some things with you? She said, no problem. So I started with Abraham. I thought, I've got to give her a context. I can't just start talking about Jesus. She needs a context for understanding who Jesus is. So I started with Abraham, and I told the whole story. I spent about 45 minutes telling the whole story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons and Joseph going to Egypt and, and then all of the, uh, you know, Jacob's family moving to Egypt and then a couple hundred years goes by and then Moses is born and the, Egyptian, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and then Moses grows up and delivers them from Egypt. They go into the wilderness and then the fire on Sinai and the giving of the law and 40 years in the wilderness and then come into the promised land and, and uh, Joshua and the conquests and, and the established kingdom and then King Saul and then King David and then the divided monarchy. And so, I mean, I told her the whole story. I spent like an hour telling her the whole story. And, and when I walked in the room, she was hiding under the, the blankets. She was so scared. She was scared to death of dying. But as I told the story, she started to come out. And by the time I got to Jesus, she sat up. And when I told her about Jesus and how he healed the sick and how he raised the dead and how he cleansed the lepers and how he taught about the kingdom of God, she was getting more and more excited. But then when I told her about how he was crucified and how he died on the cross, she looked devastated. And, and she asked me, why did he have to die? I said, because all of us have done wrong. She said, that's true. I said, and because of that, all of us deserve the wrath of God. She said, that's true. I said, well, Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf, and that's why he died. He took the punishment for our sin upon himself. That's why he died. And she goes, that makes sense. And I thought, 
No, it doesn't. <laughs> That's right. It makes sense if God is giving you the gift of faith. If not, it doesn't make a lick of sense. I mean, go tell that to 100 people outside and see if everybody goes, that makes sense. But it made perfect sense to her. And then she said, can we pray right now? I said, wait, I got to tell you about the resurrection. She's like, the resurrection? And then I told her how Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand. And she was overjoyed. She was so full of joy, and then she grabs my hands and starts squeezing, and I said, I want you to invite Jesus to come into your life right now, and she starts saying this, the prayer and inviting Jesus to come into her life, and tears start flowing down her face, and then when I finished praying, she wasn't done. She kept going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, and then she starts saying, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you so much, and I'm looking at her going, what? You love Jesus? You didn't know him 45 minutes ago. Now all of a sudden you're, you know how long it takes to get believers to say, I love you, Jesus. <laughs> I got folks in my church for years who've never said, I love you, Jesus. I don't know him yet. That I don't know you like that <laughs> to say, I love you. But she's like genuinely pouring out her love to Jesus. And then, and then I left and she was just filled with joy. Every family member that came in, she starts preaching the gospel to. You need to know Jesus Christ. And her daughter comes in and goes, what happens to you? What happened to you, mom? You know what she said? She said, I saw him. I saw him. When I asked him to come into my life, he came into the room and I saw him. He's that real. I mean, she had a real encounter with Jesus Christ. And within a few days, she had gone home to be with the Lord. But she died with a smile on her face because she had met the author of life. You know, we read Acts chapter 9 and we see that Saul's conversion was so supernatural. Your conversion was just as supernatural. Yeah, that's right. If you met Jesus, it's because Jesus met you. If you found Jesus, it's because Jesus found you. And you might have went in the place where you weren't even looking for God. Maybe you came to church because you were looking for a boyfriend. <laughs> or a girlfriend. Oh, man. Oh. I'm, I'm praying for you, Keone. It's good. <laughs> She's coming. Don't worry. She's coming. Just keep coming back. Keep coming back. But Jesus came looking for you. You might not have even come looking for him, but Jesus came looking for you. That's right. He's on the road to Damascus. The scripture says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, that he is breathing threats and murder against the church. Literally, he is inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the church. In, a, in B.C. 154, the high priest in Jerusalem received from Caesar extradition powers that gave him the right to extradite those Jews who had transgressed the Jewish law from different parts of the Greco-Roman world back to Jerusalem so that he could execute them. So the high priest had the power to do that. And Paul gets letters from the high priest and goes to Damascus. Damascus was an extremely prominent city with a huge population of Jewish people. And there were synagogues all over Damascus. And so Saul knew that if the gospel could reach Damascus, if Christians could make their way to Damascus and, and go into the synagogues and start converting a bunch of people to Christianity and sharing the gospel there, if, if the gospel could take root in Damascus, that would be the open door to the whole world. And so Saul says, we're going to cut it off at the past. We're going to go to Damascus. We're going to snuff this thing out. We're going to find everybody who, who claims to know this Jesus guy there. We're going to drag them back to Jerusalem. We're going to try them, and we're going to kill them. 
But on the way to Damascus, on the way, he has an encounter with the risen Lord. The first thing that happens is he says, a light shines all about him. And he said it was brighter than the sun. Actually, Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us the story. In Acts chapter 22, Paul tells the story again to a, a mob in Jerusalem that's trying to kill him. And then in Acts chapter 26, he tells the story again to King Agrippa where he appeals to Caesar. And so we find this account three times in the book of Acts. But he says a light shine, shone all about him. And the light was so strong that everybody was knocked to the ground. Paul and all of his companions are knocked to the ground by the power of this light. And then he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now, there's a biblical scholar by the name of Seyun Kim who wrote a book called The Origin of Paul's Gospel, and he argues that everything that Paul said, did, and wrote from that day forward were simply an outgrowth of that one experience with Jesus. That his whole gospel, that all of his theology, that all of his teaching, that everything he did and said, he was simply reflecting back on the power of that, what we call the Damascus Christophany, where Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. His conversion experience was so powerful that he reflected on it for the rest of his life. Everything you read in the book of Romans, in the book of Ephesians, and Galatians, and Philippians, and Colossians, and, and all the, both of the Corinthians, everything you read in all of those letters is simply Paul working out and communicating what he received from Jesus on the road to Damascus. Listen, we don't understand the power of one encounter with God. Wow, wow. The power of an encounter. Like so often we think so episodically that we tend to think what God does in your life today is just for today or is just for this week. Right, but listen, right, right. You, we, we need to be more intentional about reflecting, meditating, and praying about the things that God... You need to go back and look at what God said to you five years ago. If you've been walking with God for any period of time, you need to go back and pray about an encounter you had with him 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Why? Because what God does, it, it's always like a slow-release capsule. Yeah. Encounter with God is like a slow-release capsule. And over years and decades, God will, out, will work things out and continue to speak. I, I'll never forget when I was going into Banda Aceh uh, back in December of 2006, and the Lord spoke to me and told me to tell the church there that a great persecution was coming upon them. And I said, Lord, I can't tell them that. And the Lord said, tell the church that persecution's coming, but don't be afraid. I said, Lord, I can't tell them that because I'm afraid. And matter of fact, now that you told me that, I don't think I'm going in there. <laughs> And all of a sudden, the Lord took me back to when I was nine years old and Dr. Sam Huddleston laid his hands on me and the Holy Spirit came upon me and filled me. And the Lord spoke to me and said, I gave you everything you need for this on that day when you were nine years old. Wow, wow. Everything you need to do, and I was 29 years old. The Lord said, 20 years ago, I gave you what you need to do this. And all of a sudden, the fear just left. I felt the hand of God touch my chest and all the fear just left. And when we went into Banda Aceh, you could cut the fear with a knife. I mean, the churches were already afraid. There was already this anticipation that persecution was coming. And we began to share what the Lord gave us, that persecution's coming, but the Lord says, don't be afraid because I'll be with you. And we saw God just begin to break fear off of the churches. It was such a power time. But the Lord said, I gave you what you need 20 years ago. So often you don't think you have what you need, but you have what you need. Mm -hmm. From that very moment, that one encounter with Christ, 
Paul or Saul of Tarsus had everything he needed for the mission that God had called him to. Everything he needed was already in him because he had met the risen Lord. When he sees Jesus, what he sees is light. It's interesting that he does not talk about the frame of Jesus. He doesn't talk about how tall Jesus was or what color his hair was or what color his eyes were, what kind of robe he was wearing, what kind of clothes he was wearing, what kind of shoes was Jesus wearing. You know, he he didn't say anything except I saw light. When I saw Jesus, I saw light. And he said the light was brighter than the sun. He was pure light, light of very light. He said, all I saw was glory. All I saw was brightness. Paul says later that whatever makes things visible is light. He sees the light of the glory of Jesus. What convinces him is not an argument, but light. What convinces him is not a rationality, but light. What convinces him is not even a miracle, but light. And so this same Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, lest they see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. But God is in the business of unblinding eyes and opening our eyes so that we can begin to see the light of the glory of the gospel. Now, Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world. There in Matthew chapter 5. You're the light of the world. Sometimes the only light that people are going to see is the light that comes from your life. Jesus says the city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. You know, a lot of times when we think about being a witness to Jesus, we think about, you know, having the right rationality and knowing the right things to say and having the right arguments. Sometimes it's just about having the right light. It's about enough light coming from your life so that people can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light shines about Paul and the light is so powerful that it knocks him to the ground. The light, and suddenly he's blinded by an excess of light. You know, there's really two contexts in which a normal seeing person becomes blind. The first is in complete darkness. You take all of the light out of this room, every bit of light out of this room, and all of us are blind. The second is in complete light. You flood this room with, 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 with 100% light, and all of us are blind. Paul is blinded not by darkness, but by light. Mm, wow. He sees so much of the glory of Jesus that he can't see anything else for a while. And then he hears the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I'm persecuting you? Who? I don't even know who you are. Who are you? What are you talking about? I'm persecuting you. I'm persecuting these people who claim to be Christians. He says, no, 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 no. If you persecute them, you persecute me. This is where Paul gets this whole concept of us being in Christ and Christ being in us. When he talks about not discerning the Lord's body, this is the foundation of his teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says that if you can't take the Lord's Supper and then separate from your brother. You can't say, no, you're poor, so you sit down here, and you're rich, so you sit at the table. You're not discerning the Lord's body. You can't mistreat a member of the body of Christ and at the same time say that you love Jesus. John talks about that. You can't say you love God but hate your brother. Paul says you're not discerning the Lord's body. You're mistaking the fact that what you do to the people of God, you do to Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And then he says, 
Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. And then it says that Paul was astonished. Why is he astonished? Because suddenly in a moment it becomes irrefutably clear that the way he thought about Jesus was completely wrong. Mm -hmm. He had never been so wrong about somebody as he had been in his entire life. My brother and I watched this movie Hacksaw Ridge last night. Have you seen it? Hacksaw Ridge? It's about this conscientious objector from World War II and how they all thought he was a coward. And matter of fact, they did everything in their power to try to boot him out of the military because they thought he was going to be, he was, he was in the military, but he refused to hold a weapon. And they said he was a coward. But then in the last battle at Hacksaw Ridge, he saved a hundred people. He saved a hundred lives without ever touching a weapon. And in the last scene, his commander comes to him and says, never have I been so wrong about somebody in my entire life. I thought you were a coward, but I couldn't see who you really are. And he says, I hope one day you find it in your heart to forgive me. I was completely wrong about you. All of a sudden, Paul must think, I'm in trouble. I've been trying to snuff this guy out. I've been trying to kill him, but now I realize I've been fighting against God. I realized my whole life... See, it's easy for us to come to that conclusion with Paul because he was actively killing Christians. Do you realize that before all of us came to faith in Christ, we were fighting against God with our whole life? He, you know, saw the benefit of his former life is that it was absolutely clear that the content of his former life was enmity against God. He was living as God's enemy. Do you realize, though, that every one of us, before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, were living as God's enemies? We can get so caught up in the message of the love of Christ that we forget that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, and that our lifestyle was one of enmity against God. That we were actually embracing things that God hated. Saul, when he realizes that he was living as an enemy of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is God. He's astonished, which means he's scared to death in that moment. He must be thinking at this moment, and next is where you kill me. Mm. (laughs) Now you're going to punish me. And Jesus does not tell him, by the way, it's it's I. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like He just says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he's waiting for, and now I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? Like, he's totally expecting, he's got to be expecting that. And he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? Translation, what can I do now? I mean, what can I do? Is there anything I can do to make up for what I've done? And the Lord says, go to Damascus and it'll be told you what you you must do. And for three days, they take him to Damascus and they drop him off in his hotel room and then they bounce. His companions are perplexed. They they came with him there to help him arrest Christians and send them back to Jerusalem. And now he's tripping. (laughs) He's blind. And they saw something, but they they didn't understand the words. Probably the best solution is that he said they heard the voice. But then in chapter 22, he says, they didn't hear the voice. (laughs) What probably happened is they heard the sound, but didn't understand the words. 
They knew something was happening. They were knocked to the ground by the power of the light. But they didn't see Jesus or actually hear his words. So all they know is that this blinding light knocks everybody to the ground. And then all of a sudden, their homies over here going, who are you? And they're like, what are you talking about? Who are you? Who is who? And then just, what in the heck is going? These people are completely, see, this is what happened. When you come to faith in Jesus, the people around you don't know what's going on. Like all of a sudden, you're just tripping. So they just drop him off at the hotel. He's blind. Like, here's your room. Here's your key. See ya. We, we out. Peace. And it says, for three days he was blind, and he neither ate nor drank. Maybe because he couldn't see where the fridge was. <laughs> but it's more likely that he was in shock. Right, right. He, was, he spent three days trying to figure out what just happened and what does this mean. I think we don't, when we come to faith in Christ, we don't spend enough time trying to figure out what just happened and what does this mean. In our culture, there's such a sense that, you know, when you invite Jesus to come into your life, it's just about taking him along for the ride. Right, right. Like nothing in your life actually has to change. The direction of your life definitely doesn't have to change. Mm. It's just now you're taking Jesus with you. Yeah. Mm. But Saul knew everything has to change simply because of his former life. I mean, I spent my life trying to destroy. But now I realize that what I was trying to destroy was the truth. I don't even know what to do next. I don't even know what this means. He's probably thinking I probably just need to die. It's probably over. God should probably judge me. If you haven't come to a place in your life where you realize God should probably just judge me, you haven't actually come to grips with the fact that you were ever a sinner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about condemnation. Yeah. I'm talking about identifying the depth of sin that you have been redeemed from by Jesus. It's, it's kind of like, uh, okay, dumb analogy. You're in a plane, the plane's going down, and there's only a certain number of parachutes. And somebody hands you a parachute, you put it on, and then you jump out of the plane, you open it up, and you're safe. What you don't realize is that the guy who gave you the parachute gave you his parachute. Mm. And what you don't, you just think, yeah, I was saved by a parachute. But you don't actually come to grips with the fact that, no, I didn't have a parachute. This person gave me his parachute and died in that crash so I could live. Right, right, right. You just feel lucky at, when, you don't, when you don't know. Yeah. You just feel lucky. It's like, man, I'm so lucky that there was an extra parachute. But when you learn there was no extra parachute, somebody had to give their life so that you could live. Now you're not lucky. Mm. Come on, come on. You've been given grace and favor that you don't deserve. That's it, that's it. Like somebody would give their life for me. I should have just died. Saul is like, why would, I mean, I can, I can understand why you could save some people because, you know, those are some good people. Like, who wouldn't want to save them? You know, they're living nice and right and good and they're doing, I would save them, but why would you save me? 
That's Paul's question. What would you, why would you, why in the world would you intervene in my life? And he realizes the only answer is grace. By grace, you have been saved. I don't deserve to know Jesus. It's grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And what that does, what that realization does, it doesn't condemn you. It doesn't make you afraid. It does two things to you. That realization, number one, makes you eternally grateful. And number two, it makes you fearless. Because Paul now can't be afraid of losing his life. I should have died back there. I already lost my life. And so what does Saul do? As soon as, I mean, he's, he's blind for three days. I, I just imagine him like rolling around on the floor screaming like, like totally in agony for three days. Like what the heck just happened? And all of a sudden in the middle of that three days, he has a vision of a guy named Ananias coming into his room, laying his hands on him. He receives his sight and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, down the road, there's a guy named Ananias who's in his house. He's a believer of Jesus Christ, which means that the gospel had already reached the city of Damascus and there were already believers in Jesus Christ there. And this guy, Ananias, he's in prayer and the Lord Jesus walks into his prayer time and says, Ananias. And he says, here I am. Now, I mean, how would you feel if the Lord Jesus just, like you're in prayer and Jesus just walked in? He's like, Jennifer. And what are you going to be like? Uh, here I am. <laughs> yeah, uh, speaking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that just freak you out like the Lord just walked in? Isn't that crazy? And he says, Ananias, here I am. Go into the street called Straight, by the way, which is still there in Damascus, in modern, what is now, this, the street's still there. He says, uh, go into the street called Straight, inquire in the home of a man named Judas for a man named Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And now Ananias, in the presence of the resurrected Jesus Christ, decides to argue with him. <laughs> so, well, hold on a second. Saul of Tarsus, I know this dude. Translation, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me inform you. Of, <laughs> you know what I mean? Let me tell you about this guy, Lord. <laughs> I mean, this is a bad dude. I heard what he did back in Jerusalem. You remember that dude, Stephan? He's up there with you now. You know why? Because of that dude, Saul of Tarsus. And now he's come here to destroy those who call upon your name. And Jesus says, go. <laughs> like, shut up. <laughs> you know, translation. Don't argue. You think I don't know that? Are you giving me some information? He says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings. And he says, for I will show him what great things he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias goes, he goes into the street called Straight. He finds the home of a man named Judas. He goes up to the, I guess the Airbnb where Paul is staying. <laughs> and he walks right up to Paul. He sees him there groveling blind. And he walks over and he lays his hand on him. And he says, Brother Saul. The only evidence he needed 
was the Lord. Now all of a sudden, Ananias knows Saul not by his history, but according to the revelation of Jesus. Wow. And he speaks to him not according to his history, but according to the revelation of Jesus. Yesterday I called you enemy Saul. Today I call you brother Saul. And the only thing that's changed between yesterday and today is Jesus showed me who you are. Brother Saul. Brother. I I want you to get this in your mind and heart. I want you to imagine that there was a group trying to kill us. They said, we've got to destroy soda. I mean, we've got to get rid of them. We've got to destroy them. We've got to, we've got to stamp them out. And then Jeremy gets into an argument with that group. <laughs> and then they drag Jeremy to the outskirts of San Francisco and throw rocks at him until they kill him. And the guy who orders his execution tomorrow meets Jesus and gets saved. And then the next day I run into him and the Lord speaks to me and says, he's a chosen vessel. And I walk in that guy's room and I go, brother Saul. Mm. How do you, don't you want his blood? (laughs) Don't you want justice? How does Anna feel about that? (laughs) Can I call him brother without talking to Anna? Uh. Mm -hmm. Brother Saul? I mean, the rebel, this, this is what's crazy. What's crazy, what is absolutely crazy is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sin of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Which means that there is nobody on earth whose sin is so heinous that it can't be forgiven by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's right. Do you know what's crazy? You remember that dude, Jeffrey Dahmer? You remember that dude, Jeffrey Dahmer? He was the guy who was like eating people. Like he would kill people, cut them up and then eat them. He was a a serial killer. I mean, he would cut people up and have them in the fridge. And then, you know, he was arrested and all that. He was tried, he was convicted and he was given the death penalty. Do you know what happened to him while he was in prison? A chaplain went and sat with him over a period of weeks and months and shared the gospel with him. Mm. And he broke down in tears, repented of his sins, and asked Jesus to come into his heart. And he was totally transformed. Do you know what happened to Jeffrey Dahmer? This is the scandal of the gospel. For all intents and purposes, it seems highly likely that he got saved. Mm. That the cross of Jesus Christ was enough for him. Even a mass, a crazy mass murderer. How scandalous is the grace of God? Yeah. Like, I mean, don't you want to talk to God and say, before you forgive him, don't you need to talk to his family members first? Right, right, right. Mm. Like, God, how dare you forgive him? Mm. How dare you forgive the people who hurt me? Yeah, yeah. How dare you forgive the people who did me wrong? How dare you forgive? But that's the scandal of the cross of Jesus Christ, that he doesn't ask our permission, that when he died for the sin of the world, he died for the sin of the world, and that there's nobody whose sin is so heinous that it can't be forgiven by the cross of Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ covers our sin does not protect us from the consequences of our sin, the earthly consequences. That's right. You understand? 
Like if you jump off a building and then repent on the way down, the Lord will say, you're forgiven, and I'll see you in a minute too. <laughs> right? I forgive you, and we'll pick you up in about 18 seconds. <laughs> Even the thief on the cross to the right of Jesus who said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom was forgiven. Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. All it takes is that moment to come to faith in Jesus. The the conversion of Saul is not just a a crazy happening. It's a scandal. This guy was a killer. And God forgave him. Why? Because you and I have no idea how gracious God is. That's right. That's no clue. No clue. Absolutely none. It's good. That God doesn't hold grudges. That maybe the people that you and I are holding grudges against, God has forgiven a long time ago. And that maybe the secret to your peace and my peace is to enter into his forgiveness. And to remember to allow the grace of God to be as scandalous as it is. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. You were my enemy yesterday. You were my brother today. We were against each other yesterday. We are for each other today. Wow. And the only thing that's changed is Jesus. Yeah, that's it. Jesus dealt with your sin. And Jesus dealt with my sin. And for me to think that my sin is less heinous mm. than your sin is the ultimate pride. Yeah. Because for me to think, but I didn't do anything as bad as you did. Maybe before God, what I did is just as heinous yeah. as what you did. I needed to be saved as much as anybody else. And when I recognize that, I can allow the grace of God to be scandalous. In a sense, it was tough being Saul of Tarsus. He was in an impossible situation. He had to wake up one day and realize that everything that his life was about was completely wrong. But in another sense, it was a great blessing to be Saul of Tarsus. Because he had the luxury of never, ever feeling that he earned anything from God or that he deserved anything from God. And because of that, he was immediately able to live his entire life in dependence upon the grace of God for his everything. And the result was that he was fearless. Ananias lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to you that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And suddenly scales fell from his eyes and suddenly he could see. And all of a sudden, and then then Ananias says, Rise up, let's get you baptized. He goes down in the water. He's baptized in the name of Jesus. He comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit falls on him. And he's filled with the overflow of the Holy Spirit's life. 
And after that experience, he's like, let's eat. I'm ready to eat. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. I don't know what it's going to look like, but let's eat. He sits at the table and he eats. And then the Sabbath comes. They said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to go to the synagogue. This is how the synagogue worked. The synagogue was the, the Jewish place of, of worship in any city. It was, it was a place where Greek-speaking Jews would come together. They would read from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they would worship. In the morning, they would read from the law. In the evening, they would read from the prophets. And on the Sabbath, they would open the floor for any male Jew to stand and exhort the people of God. If anybody had an exhortation, you could stand up and preach, basically. So Saul says, let's go to the synagogue. So they go to the synagogue, and they sit down, and somebody reads from the law, and then they say, does anybody have an exhortation from us? And Saul goes, I do. <laughs> and he stands up and says, I was on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared, and he preaches the gospel. And they're all confused because they know that he came there to kill Christians, and now he is a Christian, and he boldly preaches. And everybody's like, what the heck is going on here? And the next week, let's go to the synagogue. And he goes to another synagogue, and he starts going to every synagogue all throughout the city, boldly preaching Christ, disputing with people, and they're dumbfounded. How could this guy who tried to stamp out Christianity be preaching it so boldly, and then all of a sudden... There's anger and there's vitriol and they start plotting to kill him. And it says in verse 25 of chapter 9 that the Jews were standing, they were guarding the gate of the city of Damascus day and night to kill him. But it said some people let him down through the wall. Somebody had a house on the wall. They let him down in a basket through the window and he departed from there and went to Jerusalem. I thought that was interesting. You know, in Joshua chapter 2, uh, Joshua sent some spies over to Jericho. And these two spies, they're in Jericho, and they're kicking it at the house of this, native, this prostitute named Rahab. This is a crazy... I don't have time to actually get into this, but Rahab, Rahab the prostitute puts them up. What were they doing in this house? I don't know. I, I ain't got time. We ain't got time to... But Rahab, <laughs> Rahab the prostitute lets them out through a window down the city wall, and they escape. And the same thing happens in 1 Samuel, I believe it's verse 9, uh, chapter 19, where uh, King Saul sent some people to kill David, but his wife Michael let him out through a window and let him down the wall so that he could escape. I mean, it was like this, people had been doing this for hundreds of years. <laughs> like, they never got this. How did he get away? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why don't you guard the windows outside the walls? Like, why is it so, all the way back to Joshua, they're doing this and they're getting away. But, you know, to me, it was, it was crazy. Like in this movie, um, in this movie that we watched last night, uh, um, what did I, Hacksaw Ridge. What did he do? Like he would drag people over to the, the cliff and then he would tie a rope around them and he would let them down, right? Or even the two friends, um, who brought their lame friend to Jesus and they couldn't get in the house. So they climbed up on the roof. They, they tore a hole in the roof and then they, let it, they lowered him down to Jesus. This image of being lowered down, it's when you have no power to do something for yourself and God has people around you who are able to lower you down into something. Like, like the images of, of complete powerlessness. You know, Paul was so powerful and he had so much zeal and he was so fearless and he was ready to die. But at, at key moments in his life, there was always somebody there to lower him down when he could not lower himself down. 
It speaks of the interdependence of the members of the body of Christ, that there's always a time when you can't do it for yourself. There's always a time when you can't make it on your own. And so we have to learn to depend upon the people of God. Listen, when you're in a difficult situation, you need to recognize that God has somebody with a house right on the wall and a window right on the wall that can lower you out of the window out of your situation. One of our great problems is we don't share our great problems with one another as the body of Christ. And so a lot of times we're by ourselves because we keep our troubles to ourselves. We've got to learn how to share our troubles with one another mm. as the body of Christ. Mm. All right. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he goes and tries to find the Christians. And he shows up at the door and they're like, what are you doing? He said, I was going to church. They said, no, you're not. He said, I'm not. They said, no, you're not. He said, okay, I guess I'm not. So he went to another church where he found the Christians, and they said, what are you doing? He said, I was going to go to church. And they said, no, you're not. He said, I'm not. They said, no, you're not. And he went all over town trying to find a church that would let him in, and the ushers stood at the door blocking him from coming in. Why? Because they did not believe that he was a real Christian. you got to be careful calling somebody a fake Christian. you got to be careful looking at somebody's life and doubting their faith in Christ. They might not be a real Christian, but that's not for you to judge. Whether somebody's saved or not is God's that's God's business. That's not your business. They blocked him because they were unsure and because they were afraid of him. And then it said, but Barnabas, once again, Paul has no power to do it on his own, but Barnabas, remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, son of encouragement, back in Acts chapter four at the end, he gave that money and then Ananias and fire and blah, blah, blah. You know, Barnabas comes and becomes his sponsor. And Barnabas says, come here, Saul, come with me. And he takes him into the church. I'm like, what's he doing here? Get him out. He says, no, no, he's with me. He's not going anywhere. And he says, look, he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Have any of you seen the Lord Jesus? And it was crickets. <laughs> he said, and he preached boldly in Damascus. They had to lower him out through a window because they were going to kill him. Any of you been lowered out of a window because they were trying to kill you? And he heard crickets. So this man has risked his life for the gospel. And there was so much confusion about him because the Jews are expecting him to come back with people bound from Damascus. And so are the Christians. And now he's too Christian to be Jew and too Jewish to be Christian. <laughs> he's excluded from both worlds. And when the Jews see that he switched sides, changed teams, now they plotted to kill him. And so once again, he had to be put out of the city and they took him, they took him to Caesarea and then they sent him off to Tarsus. Now watch this. Paul goes to Tarsus, which is the city where he was born. And he's there for 14 years. We're not going to hear from him again until Acts chapter 13. Mm -hmm. It's now Acts chapter 9. 14 years transpires between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 14. Radical transformation happens in his life, and what does God do next? Sits him on a shelf for 14 years. Yeah. Hides him in another city yeah. for 14 years. Mm. Puts him out of harm's way for 14 years. What's happening during that 14 years? Is he doing ministry? Do you ever see Paul writing a letter to the church at Tarsus? Mm-mm. The church is in Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is? Mm-mm. There was no real ministry going on, even though he wanted to minister. 
He wanted to preach. He wanted, Lord, you saved me. I got to do something for you. I mean, there's no way I should be saved. Show me what ministry I can serve. I got to do something for you. And the Lord says, no, no, no. I just want you to walk with me for a while. For 14 years, he's walking with Jesus. He's being shaped. He spends some years out in the wilderness of Arabia. The Lord takes him out into the desert and says, you're just going to walk with me for a while. You're just going to sit at my feet for a while. You're not going to be eager to get out there and do some stuff. I've got some stuff to say to you first. He receives regular revelations of Jesus and visitations from Jesus. God was preparing him. God had a work for him. But there was a work of preparation that had to happen in his heart first. And this is really the culmination of the story of the Apostle Paul, as we're going to learn. It was the grace of God that saved him. And it's the grace of God that saves each and every one of us. It was the power of God that preserved and protected him. And it's the power of God that preserves and protects one of us. All, each and every one of us. It was the benevolence of the believers around him that made provision for him. And it's the benevolence of the believers that surround each and every one of us that makes provision for us. But then there's this preparatory work of God that transpires in him for 14 years. God wants you to know that he's preparing you for something that's bigger than you can see. Maybe nothing has happened in your life over the last 14 years in terms of your walk with Christ. Maybe you haven't seen anything move. You have a sense of destiny burning on the inside of you, but you have no idea. There doesn't seem to be any movement. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything. But God is preparing you for a day. And that day would later come in Acts chapter 13. And when we get there, we're going to see what God begins to do through this man's life and how he became the most prolific member of the apostolic community and one of the most prominent foundation pieces of the church of Jesus Christ to this day. But it all started when he saw light and when he heard the voice of Jesus and when he realized that Jesus was calling him and that Jesus had separated him to himself. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I just speak your blessing over each and every one of these sons and daughters of yours. I thank you for the grace that saves us. That not one of us are saved because of our good works. That not one of us are saved because we deserve it. There's nothing we can ever earn from you. That not one of us are saved because we heard the right argument. Mm. But that in one way or another, in one degree or another, we've seen the light of the glory of Jesus shining in our hearts. And Lord, I pray for an intensification of that light in each and every heart and in each and every soul. I pray for such an intensification of that light that it would become blinding. That by the light of the glory of Jesus, you would blind us to the things of the world. Yes, yes, Jesus. That the way we used to see 
we would see no more. And that the way we used to know, we would know no more. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes. And I pray that as you open our eyes, that we would see no one but Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're here with us. That you died for us. that you're calling us. I speak blessing and encouragement over each and every heart, over each and every mind, and over each and every soul. Drive out the darkness. Reveal the light. You are the light of the world said if any man walks in me he will never walk in darkness but he'll have the light of life grant that we would never walk in darkness but that we would walk in the light as you are in the light we give you glory today we give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus precious holy name stand up on your feet and just just lift your hands to the Lord just for one moment and now may the God of peace who through the eternal spirit brought back forth from the grave our Lord Jesus Christ that great shepherd of the sheep may he fill you with the knowledge of your of his will that you might grow in the knowledge of God be fruitful in every good work and joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the light. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.